you have your Bibles, take them and uh, turn into the book of Ephesians this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I've slowed down just a little bit uh, in this prayer. We'll pick up the pace again um, after we finish the prayer. I want to do this week and next week in the prayer because it's just been such an eye-opener for me to learn a little bit about prayer. Um, And I must confess, as I've been thinking about this prayer and reading it and having spent some time studying, I thought, wow, this has not been the way that I have been praying. And it's just been a real help already as I pray for my family and as I pray for the church and as I pray for others to have these things filter through my mind. Uh, And so I'm so thankful for the Spirit of God that uh, spoke to Paul as he wrote these words. Um, I'll read the whole prayer again, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 um, to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, I thank you for just an opportunity now to spend in your your word. And I was just listening as we read from the scripture that you have made us, you have formed us, you have created us. Would you give us the good sense to be those who walk according to your commandments and how appropriate that is, Lord. You know how we ought to live. You know how we ought to think. You know how we ought to pray. And would you help us, Lord, to be willing to be obedient to the path that you have laid out for us. Thank you for that reminder in the song that um, we need to have the word of God speak to us. I thank you that you have spoken, God. I thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. I thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. I I thank you that you haven't left us to figure this all out by ourselves, but you have given us this amazing book, the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, to guide and direct our lives. It's the living Word of God, and so once again, I pray, Word of God, speak. Would you make the book live in our hearts and lives, Spirit of God, so that we might live in a way that brings honor and glory to our great God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen. We've been looking at this prayer um, for the last uh, couple of weeks, and the things that have been striking me are, are the four petitions that are in, the, in this particular prayer, and uh, how much they need to instruct me. The first petition that we looked at is that Paul prayed that we might be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might grow in our knowledge of God. And it has struck me how basic that is to our life, how basic that is to Christian life, how basic that is to all people. We need to know God. We need to know about him. We need to know who he is. We need to know how he thinks. We need to know his character. We need to know what he thinks of us. And so it makes eminent sense that when we're praying for one another, that one of the highest things on our priority list ought to be, God, would you give them a greater knowledge of who you are? And so Paul has been praying that for these uh, Ephesians, uh, these, these Christians here. 
The second thing that he prayed for them is he prayed that, the, that they might come to realize something of the hope to which they have been called. And all of these petitions you, you notice that Paul makes, these aren't things that are readily um, uh, uh, knowledgeable to us. We, we don't think of them uh, offhand. And that's why he says we need a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's why he prays that the eyes of our hearts might be open. Because as we looked at last week, not everything is as plain as the nose on our face. There are lots of things that we read and they just go right over us. There's jokes that people tell and some of us don't get the punchlines. There's more serious things that, you know, you're, you're listening to a doctor give you a report and you only hear certain things and you miss all the rest because you're focused on certain things. And so it is true in the spiritual realm and it's true in our walk with God that we need to have him open the eyes of our heart so that we might see those things which we no, wouldn't normally see. We live in this world that's a, both a natural world and a spiritual world. We live in this world that's, that's comprised of both the visible and the invisible. We live in this, in this world um, with heart problems, with stubbornness, with dullness, with rebellion in our hearts. And so we need the Spirit of God to work in us, to open our eyes, to see these amazing things. And the first thing that he asked for us is that we would come to know something of the hope to which we have been called. And I said last week that that was really the fuel of our endurance. By understanding this hope, it would give us the, the, the fuel that we needed to live for God in the day out, day in war of life. That as we battled with sin, as we battled with godliness, as we battled with holiness, as we realized that we had this amazing hope that one day that battle would be over, that one day we would be made perfect, that one day our salvation would be complete. What a great hope that is. And then on top of that, we have the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. And just that hope alone is to be a hope that purifies us. And so really, as Paul is praying this, that we might know the hope of which, to which we've been called, he's praying for our sanctification. He's praying for our, for, our, for our longing for Jesus Christ. He's praying that we might put on the helmet of hope, which is the salvation of our, uh, that we've come into. So it makes eminent sense that we pray for people. That as they go through their day in, day out lives, that they would know something of the hope to which they have been called. But the second thing then that Paul prays for, as he prays for us, is he prays that we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I, I thought about this, and I've been thinking about this for the last two or three weeks. I don't think I've ever prayed that for anybody. Um, and it, it, sort of, it sort of stopped me in my tracks. This is, this is Paul instructing us on how to pray. This is Paul telling us how to pray for other people. This is Paul saying what people need. And I don't think I've ever prayed this for anybody, even myself, in my life. Paul prays that we might have the eyes of our heart open so that we might see what are the, glorious, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the way that I make sense of things is sometimes I put them in my own words or I put them in a catchy phrase, um, something that, that helps me remember them. And uh, the thing that I wrote here was the heavenly promise that counterbalances all earthly loss. It's the heavenly promise that counterbalances all earthly loss. Again, we need to remember that these are not things that we naturally see. That's why Paul says that we need the eyes of our hearts open so that we might understand what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ. Now, there's another place where Paul writes and he says, uh, he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
In other words, there's this amazing inheritance that is ours. There's these amazing things that God has prepared for us. And this is, this is stuff that we've never heard. It's stuff that we've never seen. We, we just don't know about it. And so he's saying, I want them to come to understand this. Father, would you open their hearts to see it? And one of the things that I often do is I, I ask myself questions as I read through the Word of God. And so one of the things that I asked, because it struck me that I've never prayed this for myself, I said, well, why? Why in the world would Paul ever say that he wants our eyes open so that we might know what are the glorious riches of our inheritance? Why would he pray that? And the, I thought about it, and I, 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 I sort of did my thing, and what I came up with, at least for me, was this. Because there is a great cost to following Jesus. It's the cost of discipleship. And if I, if I begin to grasp what is the cost of following Jesus, then what will give me hope? What will help me know that what I've given up to follow Jesus hasn't been futile? It would be coming to know something of the amazing inheritance that is mine in Christ Jesus. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. And we have, we have the same trouble with discipleship that I think we have with the, with, with the word saint, which we looked at a little while ago. Uh, the word saint is one that, that um, for many, um, it's thought of as, well, that's, those are super Christians. A saint is somebody who has done a certain amount of things. They've done a miracle. They've done this. They've done that. And, and so they're a saint. I'm just a normal Joe Christian. Well, as we looked at, Ephesians doesn't allow us to think that way, and neither does the Bible. The moment you become a Christian, you're called a saint. So everyone who is a Christian is a saint. In the same way, people want to make that same distinction with discipleship. They say, well, well, I'm just saved and I just follow Christ, but then there's the disciples. They're the real followers of Christ. Well, again, you, I don't find that distinction anywhere in the Bible. The moment you become a Christian, you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, by definition, one is written that a disciple is one. A, a disciple means forsaking everything to follow Christ. So every one of us who has become a Christian, we are on this path of forsaking everything to follow Jesus Christ. That's what our missions statement is part of it, is making fully devoted followers of Christ. That means learning discipleship. That means counting the cost for following him. And I wonder sometimes if in our North American culture, if we have sort of lost sight of the cost of discipleship. If we've sort of made Christianity just a cultural addition. Um, you know, it's like um, an application that you add to your iPhone. Well, I'm just going to add discipleship to my iPhone. It's a new app. Or I'm going to add Christianity to my life and we just bring it in. It's not that way in the Bible. It's not an easy thing to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to, again, try and frame of how this then fits into praying for, uh, about what is the glorious or the riches of a glorious inheritance in Christ. And the first thing that I, that I thought about is not everyone is willing to pay the price. Not everyone is willing to pay the price. Um, uh, in Matthew chapter 19, and I put down on the notes, Mark, which they're the same account, just uh, of, of different words, but I want to read it from Matthew 19. There's a, a, it's a story of a rich young man, and it says this. And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said to him, 
You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You might have noticed that those are all commands from the second table, which are, relate to loving our neighbor. Um, Jesus said nothing about the first table, which is worship God, have no other gods before you, um, keep the Sabbath day holy. Um, and so the young man said to him, all of these I have kept. Wow. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is not a a scripture text that we often use for Evangelism 101. Um, We seem to want to remove all barriers of a person following Jesus Christ. It seems to be the opposite of what Jesus does as you follow Jesus in the way that he talks with people who are inquiring about what it might mean to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And we have a tendency to want to remove barriers. Jesus has a tendency to point out what is the barrier of each individual person that is keeping them from actually following Jesus Christ. The thing that I notice about this man is that he was eager to follow Jesus. Uh, The Mark uh, edition of this same account says that Jesus was about to head out on a missions trip. So here was Jesus. He had a group of people. They were all going to go out, and they were going to do this missions trip. And this man wanted to come along, and so he ran up to him, and he said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing that I think is helpful to point out is that eternal life is, is not something that you sort of can buy. Uh, It's not something that you, uh, in a sense, um, possess. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. And I know this is a crude analogy, but this sort of helped me make sense of it. It's like if somebody came up to, um, I don't know, Roberto Luongo and said to him, Roberto, what must I do to be an NHL goaltender? Well, he wouldn't say you could buy it. He wouldn't say that, that, uh, he would say, well, it, this is the price that you're going to have to pay to be an NHL goaltender. It's going to cost you wax of money. It's going to cost you lots of sleep. You're likely going to have to leave your parents and live in some foreign city and play on a different team. You're going to get beat up, and you might not make it at the end. But if you want to be an NHL goaltender, that's what it's going to take. And I think in the same way, we need to think about what it means to follow Jesus Christ with that same sort of thought in mind that it's this journey that we're on. It's this route that we're traveling, not just something that we get and we put it in our pocket with everything else. And so Jesus begins to answer his question and responds to him the first way. The first thing Jesus does is he challenges his conception of good. He thought that, I think he was thinking he was good, and Jesus said, you know what? There is nobody good. The only person that is good is God. Because I I think he sort of came up and, well, I've kept all the commandments. I'm pretty good. And Jesus sort of leveled him right away and said, there is nobody good, only God. So that took away one of his sort of rungs on becoming a follower of Jesus. And then he confronted him with the law. He said to him, you've got to keep the commandments. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to be a follower of mine, if you want to be a disciple of mine, then keep the commandments. And then the third thing that he did was he called him to repent. He said, if you really want to become a disciple of mine, you need to repent of your idolatry. You need to sell all that you have and follow me. Now, that's not the same for everybody. But this man, his idol was money. 
His idol was possessions. And you know that Jesus didn't say anything about you shall worship God and God alone. But this man had to make a decision. He had to decide, do I want to follow God and worship God alone? Or do I want to find all my security and all my hope and, and all my benefits and put all my eggs in the basket of my possessions? Possessions, God. Possessions, God. I'll choose possessions. And so he decided that day that the cost was too much, that he would rather worship his money, and so he chose his money. Not everyone is willing to pay the cost of following Jesus Christ. The second thing, though, that I thought about is that no one is excused from counting the cost. In the story of, in, in, in Luke chapter 14, there's another story which sort of wraps around um, a whole number of things that Jesus says about discipleship. And one of the books that I read um, uh, probably a summer and a half ago, two summers ago, and it's a book that I wish I had never bought, and it's a book that I wish even more that I didn't read, and it's a book that I wish I hadn't pulled off my shelf the last week. But it's a, a book called 10 Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And one of the sayings comes from what I'm going to read to you this morning, and you'll understand why he wrote this book, 10 Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them. Now I think we need to just get that picture. Jesus was attracting just a whole bunch of people. And why not? He was feeding people from loaves and fish. He was raising people from the dead. He was casting out demons. He was healing the sick. He was giving sight to the blind. He was giving this amazing teaching. And so there was just all kinds of people gathering around him and, and wanting to follow him. And so he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. I wish Jesus never said that. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I wish Jesus hadn't said that. Three sentences, each ending with the phrase, cannot be my disciple. J.C. Rowell, in, in one of his books, wrote, It does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and making him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. But it's precisely because of the cost that many people turn away from following Jesus. And you read the parable of the sower and the seed, and you see in there that seed fell on four types of ground. Only one of them produced Christ followers. The other three all produced those who for a moment thought, I can follow Jesus, but the cost was too much. And they walked away from following Jesus. I suspect as Paul was praying for these Ephesian Christians, 
as he was praying for these believers, they are beginning to realize the cost of following Jesus Christ. And what is it that will help them consider that cost properly? Well, it's a knowledge that even though they might have given up everything on earth, he prays that they would know the riches of, the, of their glorious inheritance in the saints. It's not what they've given up, but it's what they're going to gain by being a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, we admire, don't we? We admire the hockey player who sacrifices sleep and friends and parental relationships to attain the NHL. Wow, good on you. I could never make that sacrifice. We admire the singer who gives up everything to pursue their dream of a career. And they leave their home, they leave their familiar, they leave their parents, they go to a big city, they live in an apartment, they live off of nothing, they work 18 hours a day, they record, they, they do all that kind of stuff with the hopes of making a singer and they make it and we buy their albums and think, man, I wish I could sing like that. We admire the business person who at the cost of success sacrifices everything to get there. They sacrifice their family, they sacrifice their friends, they sacrifice the things that they enjoy doing, but they build an empire and we admire that and we say, wow, look at what he has accomplished. Why do we admire those who make significant sacrifices to gain the world, but sort of recoil at those who make significant sacrifices to follow Jesus Christ? Loved ones, there is a cost to following Jesus Christ and I forgot, and it's probably a good thing because we'll run out of time this morning, but I had a book um, at home, and uh, the, the guy was saying, what, what you ought to do is you ought to um, create a ledger. And on one side, put all the things that you will have to give up to follow Jesus Christ. On the other side, put all the things that you will gain in following Jesus Christ. And he does it so beautifully in a page and a half, and, and as you go through the book at the end of it, it's just like, wow. What you gain in following Jesus Christ is far, far greater than what you will ever give up in the world. And so he talks about this cost of following Jesus Christ. Loved ones, there is a cost to following Christ. It is everything. That is why Paul wants us to know something of the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. And then there's the Ephesians. The Ephesians had already begun to pay the cross, pay the cost of following Jesus. Consider the Ephesian context. Um, In the book of Acts, we have the story of uh, the Ephesians. And I just want to read one portion in in verse 18 of chapter 19. Also, many of those who are now believers. So God had worked uh, amazingly in the city of Ephesus. And many were believers. And they came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here, what's happening is that as the Ephesians came, became Christians, they realized that the way that they were making a living, the way that they were supporting themselves, the things that they were involved in, they could not continue to do that and follow Christ. And so they burnt all of their magic books, they burnt all of their incantation books, they threw it on a big pile, threw gas on it, well I guess they didn't have gas in those days, but they would have put something on it and lit it up. Some have calculated minimally that that is 50,000 days wages, or the equivalent of perhaps 6 to 10 million dollars in today's economy. If we think in terms of an inheritance, they had sacrificed a great deal to follow Christ. 
But it was more than that. They had given up their livelihood. This is how they made a living. As people came into Ephesus, a city full of idolatry, they would be at the temple gates reading their palms, reading the guts of lambs that had been slaughtered to tell people what their future held. They would be giving them spells. That's how they made their living. So they had given up their livelihood. They had given up their inheritance. They had given up what they had received from their parents. They had given up what they would pass on to their kids. They had given up their influence. They had walked away from a lucrative income. And we might then ask, well, were they now poor? Well, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Philippians, Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, when we know what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, we are more able to consider the cost of following Jesus. I was thinking this past week about a number of things. Um, oh, retirement, money, um, um, you know, trusting God and those sorts of things in my own life. And it was like the time that I worried about going bald. And um, you laugh, you who have hair. Uh, it's, it's quite a trauma. And um, uh, I remember um, probably six or eight years ago, uh, I had two bad weeks of thinking about going bald. And one day, hey, Kevin, <laughs> one day I stood in front of the mirror and I stopped and I said, Paul, this is so silly. He says, your wife is not going to leave you. Your character has not changed. I, my love for you is not gauged on how much hair you have. Get over it. And I got over it. And I'm quite happy to be bald. <laughs> but I was thinking of that in terms of, of money. Um, and wondering about God's provision and his ability to provide for needs. And I read this story in, in um, Numbers about uh, the people of Israel. And uh, they, they, they were out in the wilderness and they were tired of eating manna. And they came to Moses and they were really mad and they were grumbling and complaining. They said, Moses, we want meat. And so Moses and Aaron went into the presence of God and God was really angry with the people. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give them so much meat that it's going to come out of their nostrils, it's going to get stuck in their teeth, they're going to have so much meat. For 30 days, I am going to feed them. So then a little bit later, then Moses comes before God, and, and Moses is a little bit doubtful, and he says, okay, God, we've got six, over 600,000 men on foot. It's not including the women and children and those who ride on the buggies. And you said you're going to give them meat for 30 days. Are you going to suck up every fish out of the ocean? Are we going to have to kill every cow and every goat and every, every sheep that we have in order for this to take place? And I love God's response to him because it, it just did something in my heart. The first thing God said to him was, is the arm of God too short? Wow. There is nothing I can't do. Do you think it's any big thing for me to feed 600,000 plus people for a month with meat? Come on, Moses, who are you dealing with? And then the second thing he says, which I think is even more astounding than that, is he says, I have given you my word. I have given you my word. Loved ones, we have, we have God on our side. It doesn't matter what we give up to follow Christ. It doesn't matter what the cost. The arm of God is not too short to provide whatever we need. And even more than that, he has given us his word, which says, if you pursue after me, if you seek after righteousness, I will give you everything else that you need. And so I just left my study just thanking God 
for his reminder to me not to doubt his power or to doubt his word where he says, I will provide for your needs. Have you ever considered Romans chapter or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32? Listen to this again. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, there's that same word enlightened, and he prays, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you see the practical implication of what Paul is praying here? He's praying that when you get a glimpse of what God has promised you, when you get a glimpse of what are the riches of his glorious inheritance that he set aside for you, you can joyfully accept anything that you have to give up or anything anybody takes away from you because it pales in comparison to what God has in store for all of those who love him and trust him and follow him. Does that not make huge sense then that we ought to be praying for people that they might know the glorious riches of their inheritance? When you pray for the persecuted church, and I was thinking of Myanmar, you pray for those Christians who meet in caves, who have lost their spouses, who have lost their jobs, who has given up everything. What ought we to pray? God, would you help them? Would you open the eyes of their heart to see the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints? And as they get a glimpse of that, they will be able to endure with joy even the plundering of their property. This is eminently practical stuff. Finally, we... What we know and what we think about, these will determine the quality of our life on earth. That's where we come back then to Paul's prayer here for the church and for us. That we might know something of the riches of his glorious inheritance because of the cost of following Jesus Christ. He wants God to open our eyes to understand what those riches are. Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth to comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. If you lose your job because you will not fudge the books, if you lose friends at school because you have decided that Wednesday night or Friday night you're going to come to PIM, that pales in comparison with the amazing glory that's going to be revealed to you when you see Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians, um, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. What is that great treasure? It's Jesus Christ dwelling in our hearts and lives. Hebrews 12.2 talks about our example in Jesus, looking to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Again, here it is, who for the joy that was set before him. What is the joy that was set before him? It was the glorious inheritance, the bride of Christ. It's the, the countless men and women around the world who had come to faith in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Again, whatever it cost to do the will of God, he was able to do it because of the joy that was set before him of the inheritance that he would one day receive. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It's really talking about a mindset. I have made up my mind. Sometimes when people tell you I've made up my mind, you know that they're never going to move off of that. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Make up your mind to think about heaven. How much time do we spend thinking about heaven? How often do we 
just stop when our world is out of control and start thinking about what's coming. Start thinking about what's been promised to us. Start thinking what God has laid aside for us. Paul is unable to describe this. He uses superlative after superlative. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? What awaits us is beyond our imagination. As I read earlier, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. As we close, then really quickly, what about this inheritance? I mentioned earlier that, that inheritance is eternal life. It's the new heaven and new earth that we'll gain. But our inheritance will mean being with Jesus. John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Loved ones, that is part of our inheritance, is being with Jesus forever. What about our inheritance mean seeing that we will see Jesus in all his glory? We, 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 we see Jesus as a man. We really do. We, we have pictures of Jesus in the flesh, sort of flesh and blood walking around on earth. And you remember the time when Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, it says that the veil was sort of lifted, and all of a sudden, Jesus shone. Like, they, they, they got a glimpse of his glory. Well, Jesus prays. He says that, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Part of our inheritance is seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he says, um, or we read, our inheritance is a new body. A new body. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's part of our inheritance. It's part of the promise of God. No more pain, no more suffering, no more getting beat up, no more abuse. This body will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. Peter said, see, we have left homes. We have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. See, loved ones, if, if we get a grasp of this, that what we give up in order to follow Jesus Christ, whatever that cost might be, it pales in comparison to understanding what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. And as we get a glimpse of what God has promised to us, as we fix that in our hearts and minds, no matter what we go through here on earth, no matter what we struggle with here on earth, it's put in the perspective and the context of what we are going to get one day when we see Jesus face to face. As Peter says about that inheritance, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded by faith.